It is part five of our Judges series. And how long is it going to be? I don't know. I always mess those things up anyway, so I have no idea how long this series is going to be. But it's going to be long, and I'm enjoying it the whole time. I hope this series has been a lot more interesting than you assumed. When I said I was going to go through Judges, you were probably thinking, ah, boring. But it's not been boring, has it? Okay, good. Thanks. One person said no. Okay, well, anyway, for the rest of you, you're still showing up, so apparently you have issues as well. Anyway, today's lesson is entitled, Abandoned to Win, When God Removes Help to Show Glory. I just want to show you real quick something in the quote here by St. Augustine in the book compiled named Confessions. Speaking of himself, and he was a brilliant man, and referring to those gifts and talents, he said, You know, Lord my God, that quick thinking... And capacity for acute analysis are your gift. But that did not move me to offer them in sacrifice to you. And so these qualities were not helpful, but pernicious because I went to much pains to keep a good part of my talents under my own control. Jump to the last line of that quote. What advantage did it bring me to have a good thing and not to use it well? I want you to allow that to echo around in your mind as we begin today by talking about the issue of gratefulness. God has equipped you and designed you with certain things that you are very good at. Things that you have that are resources, whether it be time or energy or interest or passion, whatever it may be. God has designed you with these things and largely you are still looking for what you don't have. And I would tell you this because I am a man just like you in the idea that I have a tendency not to be grateful for what I do have, but always look for what I'm still lacking. And here's kind of what I mean. We come to church and we think, gosh, you know what? They didn't play that song. I've been waiting for that song. I mean, they never play that song. I want that song. The whole time ignoring the fact that we have a sound system that we were able to hear the other songs with. We come in here and we go, dang, it's a little bit cold. Is it cold? You're in a temperature-controlled environment. That's pretty cool. You're sitting there and going, is he going long? The whole time you're sitting on a comfy chair in an area that's decently well-lit, and we're trying to make sure that it's a peaceful place for you. So all in all, we're constantly looking for what we don't have, and our hearts end up becoming enraptured with discontent. Now, there's two ways that God gets glory in your life primarily. One of those is in your own heart. But as long as you have an attitude of discontent, and here's what I don't have, and God, why didn't you give me this? And God, why don't you help me here? You will never give Him the glory He deserves. And then there's the way that God gets glory outside of you. How you affect people, how you talk to people, how you handle people. And you know what? A lot of times God's not getting the glory there either. Now, I have, it's really funny, I play little games in my mind to get me through life, and I don't know if it's because I'm bored or what my problem is, but I develop little things that I think are funny, and no one else does, but I still use them. One of those happens to be in prayer. Now, here's what I mean. If you've ever gone to lunch with me, or you ever go to dinner with me, you'll notice something funny. I have little rules about prayer. I don't pray for appetizers, all right? Now, here's why. I don't pray for salad. It's not a real meal. Okay, I don't. And ladies, if you're eating a salad as your meal, I don't understand that. It's not. It's it's a precursor to a meal. It is not a meal in and of itself. Anyway, 
I refuse to pray over salad. I refuse to pray over fries. I refuse to pray over dessert. I will only pray over entrees. And here's why. The minute I get my steak or whatever it is that I've been waiting for, I feel like I have to pray again. And I don't want, God forbid, I pray twice. So I don't want to pray initially. I only pray when the big stuff hits. All right. That's kind of my rules. Now, as I was thinking about this prayer concept, everybody always asks me because I'm a pastor. Lance, will you pray for the food? I have no idea what that means. It's already dead, okay? It's, you know, it's kind of like, well, you pray, well, I don't think it's going to help much. And if it does come alive, then I don't get to eat it. So I don't have a great motivation to pray for this food. And so whenever I pray, I use it as an excuse to pray for all the needs that are going on. And I have a, as a time of personal connection and reflection with God. I don't know what it means to pray for food. So at the end of the prayer, just for everybody else, I say, and something about food. Amen. Okay, because I don't know what that means. Now, it's funny because prayer now has become the phrase, will you say the blessing? Right? And you kind of go, well, say the blessing. What, what does that mean? Do you kind of, you know, cross it and flick holy water on it? What, what are you doing there? And here's what it means in our day and age. Dear Jesus, I'm about to eat a fat-laden cheeseburger. In some way, by the power of your Holy Spirit, can you extract out the calories... And bless it to my body. When you were the one that selected the fat-laden cheeseburger, and, and you're the one that went to that restaurant in the first place. And now you're praying that God, and then all of a sudden you get kind of convicted with a sense of selfishness. And so you say, and bless the hands that prepared it. Uh-huh, right? And so all the McDonald's workers are strong and powerful and, you know. <laughs> But here's what it used to be before when you would pray for the food, it used to be phrases like who will say grace. Do You remember that or who will give thanks? Now, that is actually kind of where it came from. As you look in the Bible, it's interesting. As you read through the early church in the book of Acts, it would say and they gave thanks and broke bread. And that was their way of saying they had dinner together. The idea of giving thanks was really the point. And when we read the Lord's Prayer, we say, give us this day our daily bread and thank you for what you've done and. It used to be a focus on who God was and that he keeps providing stuff for us. It was a way of thanking him and taking one portion of your day and saying, God, you spoil us. But nowadays it's turned back inward and we're praying, Lord, make it good for me. More and more about us. And it's just little insidious ways and comments that we make that seem to always steal the glory from God. For example, if anything happens spiritual and everybody wants to talk spiritual in the church, they say, wow, you really blessed me today. Well, that sounds spiritual. It sounds great. The problem is, is who's the focus on you? Well, what happens if you leave? You know, I wonder if more people are not leaving the church and leaving God because of people that aren't nice in the church because we've led them to believe that they can stare at us. I wonder if some of the fault is ours, for we are constantly saying, God bless me, made me amazing, and now I'm blessing you. Why can't it be, I'm merely a tool, God is blessing you through me. God is there, and whether I'm here or not, it doesn't matter. God is the one that does it. But we can't ever let go of that much glory. We always have to hang on to a little bit for us, and we keep robbing God from what is rightfully his. Does that make sense? Well, what we're trying to do is, and the fill in the blank is in front of you, is try to snap our minds back into shape. 
the fill in the blank in front of you is God is not getting the glory in our lives that he deserves. God is not getting the glory in our lives that he deserves. You know, I think that one of the things that kind of led Satan down the path that he was on, and there's some suggestions in some of the prophetic books that this may be true, is that he was really close to God. And I have a feeling that when you're really close to God and you're the best looking and you do all stuff for God, that you keep a lot of that for yourself and start taking away the glory that is rightfully his. And it makes you a monster. So for you, how did God design you? And do all pathways lead back to you? Or do they lead back to God? Because you cannot build your kingdom and God's kingdom at the same time. It's got to be one or the other. Would you turn with me to the book of Judges? Judges chapter 7, verse 1. It's page 175 in the Bibles that were handed to you. Judges chapter 7, verse 1, page 175. A couple of things we have to wrestle with in these two chapters. We're covering chapter 7 and 8 today. Two things that we have to wrestle with, um, or a couple of things that we have to wrestle with, are number one, a lot of the places that are mentioned in these stories, we have no idea where they're at. They don't exist anymore. We're guessing. And so even on the map, as I'm going to explain a few things on the map to you this morning, we're kind of doing a general guess. A lot of these places, we have no idea. Second of all, the directions and places that they're going are not very clear. So if you're getting a little bit confused in the story, just understand the commentators are too. It's not super easy to decipher, but I think that the heart of the matter will become clear and we can become changed today. Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Let's begin with this. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon. Remember, they nicknamed him fighter of Baal or let Baal fight with him because he had gone head to head with the pagan god by cutting down that altar. If you remember in our last story. Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. Now, now some commentaries say we don't know where that is. Well, here's where we're at on the map. If you look at the map of all the 12 tribes, you'll notice that up in the north, we have half of Manasseh and the other half is kind of in the north on the coast. Now, Manasseh is a huge, huge tribe, but Gideon is from a little tiny clan in that tribe. So he didn't think he was very significant. But surrounding these are tribes like Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun, Issachar, these guys. Now, these will all show up in the story. Okay, so it's important to know. However, below Manasseh is on the other side of the Jordan, which separates the land. There's Gad. They're going to come in the story, too. But in our story, we're almost up in the area of Issachar at the very top of Manasseh. And we're up here. Now, this spring or this place that they're meeting is called Enherod. That word means trembling. Some people wonder if it's even a real location or they just name the location where they met trembling or fearful and you say well why would they be so fearful that's the story when Gideon assembled with his men he had 32,000 men does that sound like a decent army it sounds pretty impressive I don't have 32,000 people that I can call and go to war with so 32,000 I thought was pretty good now he's grabbed them from all these different tribes they've assembled together and that's his team now what type of leader is Gideon as we begin the story 
We've already found out he is a very, very reluctant, fearful, scaredy cat. That's what he is. He did not want to do this. God kind of pushed him and coaxed him into the process. And he had every excuse in the world why it shouldn't be him. And then, just to try to make sure he heard God right, he tested God three times. So you go, well, this is not Mr. Courageous. So now he finally has an army mustered, 32,000 people, which I would imagine is pretty tough for this scaredy cat. And God is about to mess with him. Let's take a look at what happens. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley of the hill of Moray. On our map, we're right here. That's Mount Moray right there. Funny, we're in the land of Issachar, and yet they're not even mentioned in the story. The Lord said to Gideon, now that they have the enemy camp on the north, there on the south, it's 32,000 versus how many enemies? Any guesses? 135,000. 32,000 versus 135,000. Is that good odds? Not terrible odds. That's why it's the camp of trembling. When you show up and you think that you're powerful at 32,000, you think you have the courage, you walk up and see that the enemy is more than three times your size. As a matter of fact, more than what? Four times your size. And you begin to look at this and you say, there's no way in the world, even if God's on my side, that we're going to win this war. And it was a camp of trembling. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. What? You have too many men for me to deliver Midian, the enemy, into your hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that their own strength has saved her, announce to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Stop. What? No, I'm not doing that. No, I'm freaked out with 32,000. There's no way I'm going to let people go. But what did God ask him to do? He said, let them go home. Now, he has 32,000 men. He's already nervous. And now they're going to take off. Now, it says to Mount Gilead. The problem is, is Mount Gilead's way over here. So they think it was either another mountain that was named the same thing or it's a mistranslation. And it should be Mount Gilboa, which is right there. Here's the point. Gideon was already nervous to lead. God already had to get him there. Now, what does God do on his first shot? Strip away all his security. You got too many men. Everyone's going to go back to their camp when you win this war and talk about how cool they are. Everyone's going to go back to the camp and say, man, did you see how I, I ran out behind the tree and, and then you were there and then we cornered them and wow, it was incredible strategy. And did you see how Gideon developed that whole plan? And that was incredible. And and God would be left out of it. He said, not going to happen. This is my war. It's glory time. Get rid of some of the guys. Now, you can imagine Gideon's trying to argue with the Lord and say, now, Lord, they're not going to say that. I'm going to send out an email. I will make sure that they don't say that. Nobody's going to say that. I'll, I'll be sending out emails like every day going, God did it. God did it. You can't take these people away from me. He goes, well, I hope not many leave. What is the verse? So 22,000 men left. All right. Well, 10,000 remain. Okay. Over two thirds of his army just walked away. Now, interesting. This is a warring people, right? But they're not real good at battle because it's been a little while. And how many leave? Two thirds of their whole army leaves. He said, for everyone that's scared, these people do not want to fight. You understand that? The only reason they're fighting is because all their food's being taken away. 
every day. They're starving to death. They're being completely crushed by the Midianites and the Amalekites. They don't want to fight. So he says, all right, you guys, go home. God said you can leave. Good question. Why didn't Gideon leave? He was scared. If God said everyone that trembles gets to go home, how come Gideon didn't go home? You know, it's interesting because as a leader, sometimes you don't get to do what everyone else gets to do. Sometimes God lets other people off the hook, but not you. And you look at that and you go, well, it's okay for everybody else. He said, ah, but you're not everybody else. You're my man. You're my woman for this time right here, right now. No, you and I have something else going on. So now how paranoid do you think Gideon is? He just lost two-thirds of his armor, over two-thirds. He's down to 10,000 men versus 135,000. Do you really think that he was okay with that downsizing? Let me ask you a question. What do you have too much of that's stopping God from getting glory? You got too much intelligence? Is that the problem? Where every time everybody goes, man, you are smart. I can't believe you figured that out. And God's name is nowhere to be heard. Do you have too much success, too much success in your business? Man, I can't believe you did that startup like from scratch. And now you're incredible. And look at the size of your company. And, and you are, you are, you are. See? And where's God? And here's my question for you. If God wants to downsize, are you all right with that? What are you going to do? What if God strips it away? Are you going to walk away? Or are you going to stay in the battle? But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Have you ever had anybody in your life that God pushed beyond what you thought they could handle? How about you? How many times have you said, God, enough? I'm done. I can't handle it. And God said, yeah, you can't watch this. Shove. Now, it's really, really weird when it happens to you, but it's even creepier when it happens to someone you love. And you watch God take them through this pressure cooker. He gets them in a corner and they start to panic and they start lashing out. And you're watching them and all of a sudden it's revealing everything in their heart. And you realize how wicked they really are. They just go ballistic on everybody. And you're like, God, let them go. They're going to die. You can't push them that far. They're going to snap and they're going to walk away from you. They'll never return. God, don't do this. You start praying that God would, take, would stop it. Have you ever done that? I would suggest to you that I see a lot of pain in my job. And I would tell you that if it was up to me, I would stop people's pain instantly because I don't like to watch people suffer. And you know what that would accomplish? Absolutely nothing. Only God knows where people need to go. Only God knows what level they can go. Only God knows what they can handle. So I'm watching these people and God goes, yeah, I can shove them again. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Just keep shoving them. And you're going, are you just trying to be mean? Is that what... What do you think his response to you is? No, I'm trying to transform them. And you know what? The only time they'll even look at me is when they're at the end of their rope. So no, we're going deeper. But God, they'll die. You know what? That might be the best thing for them. You still have too many men, Gideon. God, no, I don't. You took away two-thirds. I only have 10,000. It's 135 to 1. Too many men, Gideon. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. 
So Gideon took the men down to the water. Now, remember, we're talking about 10,000 men. They don't all just hang out by the river. That would be a long, long walk, right? So they come down in groups. As Gideon's down there, he says, all right, Lord, how am I supposed to know who's going to go? He said, the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Stop. What does he mean? Well, and this is kind of a visual. It doesn't translate well on radio, but I'll give you the point. Imagine one type of guy would kneel down with his his knee down on the ground, one up. He's kind of leaning on it. He scoops down, scoops up the water with his hands to keep alert. Drinks out of his hand. He can always keep his head up a little bit. And then he would lap like a dog. Then there's guys who could care less and they just want to get water in face. So they then crawl down here and they shove their face in the water and they drink. He said, all right, all the guys that knelt down and drew the water up to their mouths, those are the guys I want to go. So you can imagine there's Gideon with his little clicker, right? And he's like, one, two, three, four. You know, he's trying to count them. He's like, this better be keep going. All right. It's slowing down. Right. And he's like, man, God, this doesn't look good. What is the answer? 300 men laughed with their hands to their mouths and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. Is that good? Not really. No, that would be bad. Okay. Now we're down to 300. The Lord said to Gideon with 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. What did God just do? He just promised victory. What did Gideon hear? 300. Right? What are you choosing to hear? Right? God whispers stuff to you. And he says something like, I'm about to make you more holy. What do you hear? What are you going to take away from me? Right? Isn't that what we do? It's all about defense. It's all about walls. It's all about don't mess with me. I like it the way it is. Don't touch my life. I'm doing fine. God, I give you yours. Stay off my property. Isn't that how we act? I will determine. I have been given you. Okay? Don't mess with me. And God goes, watch this. And he trespasses right onto your property. I thought you said you were mine. If you're mine, I can walk anywhere I want. Look at me. Oh, look at me. I'm treading on your land. Right? Huh. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents. Did you see that word? That means that we just sent 9,700 men back to camp. Okay? Now, they didn't, they're in tents. They didn't completely settle back at home you're going to find out what happens here in a second because they're still going to be used in the story but not at the beginning so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents but he kept the 300 who took over the possessions and trumpets of the others now here's the deal the way the Israelites would move around is maybe one in every 500 or maybe one in every 100 would have a trumpet that was a call to war and then one of the guys would have a torch, so everyone would follow the guy with the torch. Or See what I'm saying? They had these provisions. Now, 300 men, all of them have trumpets, all of them have torches, all of them have clay jars, which is going to be necessary for the plan. So it condensed all the provisions from 10,000 down to 300. Now, the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up. Go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. This is the fourth time he's told him personally, you're going to win. But what does Gideon hear? He hears statistics. He hears probability. He hears odds. He sees circumstance. So God puts in this phrase, verse 10. 
What kind of leader do we have? Remember, very afraid. If you are afraid to attack, which means I know you are. Go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. Now, stop right there. Wouldn't you assume that as a godly man, he would go, wow, God just talked to me audibly. That's sufficient for me. You would assume that at that point, God's now told him four times he's going to win. At that point, you kind of go, I think I'm going to win. Not Gideon. What's the next verse? So he and his servant went down to the outpost of the camp. He's like, no, I'm still freaked out. I'm going down there and I'm bringing my buddy. Right? He's not even strong enough to go by himself. But sometimes you've got to let the pride go and realize that you're scared. Sometimes you've got to let it go and have somebody with you. Sometimes it helps. Why did Jesus keep sending out everybody two by two? Because we're built for community. Because we're built for comfort. Because we're built for a relationship. That's why. You know, I remember this Narnia movie. I don't know how many of you guys have seen the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the new one. But there was a very, very touching scene in there to me. Um, if you haven't seen it, C.S. Lewis wrote a book where he, he made a Christ figure, a big lion named Aslan. And this, this lion gives his life for others. They kill him on an altar. And then he comes back to life. So it's very much of a Christ character. Well, there's two girls and two boys in this family. These are children. And he's going to the place where he's going to die. And the two girls are there and they're petting him. Now, this is kind of funny. They're petting this huge lion. And he's ready to go die. And they said, do you want us to go with you? And he said, I'd really like that. And they just walked with him to his place of death. Now, you, it, with the silliness of the visual is that you're going, what are the girls going to do? And there's these little tiny girls hanging on to this big old lion. Why are they there? They're not going to protect him. But that's not what he asked for. He just wanted them with them. And it reminds me, of course, of Jesus in the garden. You remember? When he was sweating like great drops of blood and he's agonizing over this idea of going to the cross. And what did he say to his friends? Couldn't you just stay up with me a little while? And they kept falling asleep. And it was like, you know what? They're not going to shield the Son of God from his issue on the cross. He just wanted to know that they were with him. It's something about being alone. Well, right here, he grabs the servant. He said, will you go with me? And the servant said, yeah. He said, all right, let's go down there. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. And Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, and it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. Okay, let's get a quick picture. What happened? Dinner roll comes rolling in, knocks over tent, okay? Now, at that point, you kind of go, I'm missing the connection here. What does his friend say? His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon. And you're like, what? No, it's a dinner roll rolling into a tent. I don't know what you're talking about. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Now, how paranoid do you have to be? Right? It's clearly Gideon. Okay, here's where they made the connection. Barley was known as the poor man's bread. And they had been stealing all the bread and all the harvest from the Israelites for so long that now they're basically the poor people. 
So the Midianites knew it was a Midianite tent that collapsed and what hit it was a poor man's bread. And they went back and said, we're going to fight up against the poor guys. I bet you anything, that's what it means. They're very superstitious, so they believe the dream was an omen. Now, what it suggests to me is God has been messing with the enemy's mind the whole time. For weeks now, he's been sprinkling rumors in there and he's been kind of going, man, that Gideon's pretty strong, huh? They have no idea that Gideon is shaking in his boots. They have no idea that Gideon is the most reluctant leader we've ever even read in the Bible. They have no idea that all these men are full of doubt. But does it matter? No, because God's going to win the war. So God starts sprinkling it out and they're starting to get paranoid. We're going to lose this battle. We're going to lose this battle. Right? And it says what? When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he what? He worshiped God. And here's my question to you. When does the doubt and the complaining stop? When does the fear stop? And when are we allowed to worship? When are we going to stop all the complaining? When are we going to stop going, God, you didn't. God, you didn't. I can't believe this. Look at the overwhelming odds. Blah, blah, blah. How much is enough to where God steps in and he goes, are you okay now? Do you see the patience of our God? He's already told him four times. He's given him three signs. Fire from a rock. The fleece once. The fleece twice. Here he's given him a dream. He's given him every encouragement in the world. He's so patient with doubt. You remember the story of Thomas? We all know him as what? Doubting Thomas, right? So the one guy gets no credit. You have to remember, he's the guy that earlier had said, we'll go and die with you. But nobody remembers that phrase. They only remember the time that he doubted. So you got doubting Thomas. When God came in, it says he rebuked him, but then he did what? He showed him his hands and feet. That's pretty patient. Come here. You don't believe? He could have just said, you're out. Forget you. I got 11 other guys that will back me up. What is your problem? He didn't. He said, do you want to touch my hands? You need to believe. Now, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm still going to bust your chops for it. But look at my hands. We're all right. It's you and me. He returned to the camp of Israel, and now he's a leader. He called out, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands, dividing the 300 men into three companies. That sounds like strategy. He's been working on this. You give forth your best effort. Let God do the rest. He placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Stop. How's that for leadership? Guys, you ready to go to war? Yeah. What are we doing? All right. Here, take this horn. Thanks. What else? Here's a torch. All right. Good. I can see. What else? Here's a jar. Why? Whatever. Just hang on to it. Where's my sword? You're holding too much stuff. You can't hold your sword. Oh, okay. What are we going to do? So I have the light so I can bonk them with my trumpet. And I, what am I, well, then I light them on fire. What are, you, what are we doing here? I don't know quite how we're fighting. What? Never mind. Just do what I do. Okay? This is his leadership. It's kind of tough what God asks us to do sometimes. Verse 17. This is the key for any leader. Watch me, he told him. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Stop. That's 10 p.m. 
What's the middle watch? There were three shifts where guards would go out for four hour shifts. They would go out and keep alert and then they go back to their camps, go to sleep, let the other guys go out. He does it in the middle of the change. Now, in my mind, that's a stupid plan. Why is it a stupid plan? Because everybody's up. If I'm going to try to jump in and light people on fire and bonk them with trumpets and stuff, I want them sleeping. Okay, does that make sense? I don't want them looking at me, realizing my dumb plan. And so you would go, why in the world would he do it in the middle of the watch? That means the guys are coming in from shift and the other guys are getting ready to go out. So everybody's armed. That's a terrible plan. Unless your plan was revealed to you by God. Look at this. They reached the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they changed the guard. They blew their trumpets. Now, these are not, you know, you always see that like on Ben-Hur and stuff. It's always the same horn. Okay. It's not that. These are like, you know, really. It says these are horns that do a sharp, shrill cry. It's like an irritating horn. Right. And everybody blows them all over the place. Everybody just starts freaking out. That's a little unnerving in the middle of the night and broke the jars that were in their hands. Smash. That makes a big, loud noise. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets. They were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Now, why are they running? Because they've scouted out the Israelites and they know how they do war. And one torch represents how many men? A lot. One trumpet represents how many men? So now they have lights all the way around them. Huge cries that should represent thousands upon thousands of people. There's crashing noises, there's discombobulation, they're coming in, they're tired, the other guys are tired getting up, everybody's in a state of confusion, and what happens? It says, while each man held his positions, the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled, and with 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And they just began demolishing themselves. Now do you understand why we needed to do it in the middle of the watch? Because all the guys that were coming in had their swords on because they were just at outpost. And all the new guys that are getting ready to go out put their swords on. When you wake up a bunch of people by their bed, they have to find their swords. But when everybody's already armed and people are now walking into camp and people are walking out, they have no idea who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. God hits them with confusion and they just start hacking away. Now, you've got to remember, this is made up of Eastern peoples, Amalekites, Midianites. They don't all hang out together all the time. They don't even know who's on their side. So they just start destroying each other. And all Gideon's men are doing is what? Watching. They're holding their place. They don't even, probably don't even have a sword. Maybe it's strapped on, but they're just staring. And who's doing the warfare? God. Who always does the warfare? God. The army fled to Bethshittah toward Zererah, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, and Tabith. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out. Now, this is the 22,000 that were back. Excuse me, the 9,700 that were back. They come running out, the ones that were in their tents. And here's what's going on on the map. We have the Jordan River in the middle. We've been fighting up in the north. So what happens is now the bad guys have completely demolished each other. And now they're trying to run and go back home. They need to get across the Jordan and escape. So they're trying to run out this way. 
Now, so he called all these guys, remember Asher, Naphtali, all these up here. He called them back to war. So they come running in. They've been in their tents. Now they're coming in to fight and they start chasing the enemy army. They pursued the Midianites, it says, verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. Stop. Ephraim, right here. These guys on the map in the very center. When it says in the Bible, come down, it does not mean south on a map. It means from elevation. When they say come down, it means you're in a higher ground, come to the lower ground. So whenever it says, and Jesus went down to Jerusalem, it actually doesn't mean down. Jerusalem's up north. You see what I'm saying? It depends. The whole point is, it's elevation talk. So they called out these guys and said, head them off at the pass. Run up ahead and block the Jordan River and don't let them across. So sure enough, all the men of Ephraim were called out and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders... Oreb and Zeb, those words mean raven and wolf, that were their names. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Attack, all this confusion, mass hysteria. These guys, the Ephraimites, run in, hack down these leaders. They're killing people. They go back and meet before Gideon goes on his next expedition. And they have a problem. After all this fighting, now the Ephraimites are about to complain. Isn't it amazing our capacity to grumble at the worst times? It's like we jump ship right when we're supposed to be doing something big. It's amazing that while everyone's supposed to hang in there and go, okay, we all on the same team, everyone pops off. And you're going, hold on a second. Not now. Watch it. Well, Now, the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Like, what? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. Okay, you know what I would have done if I was Gideon? Are you really coming at me like this? Are you challenging me? I'm out here putting my tail on the line, busting it so that we can be safe. I'm the only one leading us against the Midianites. Where have you been? You know what? And you're going to come and attack me and my leadership? Get out of here. But what do good leaders do? What did Gideon do? But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of your grapes better than the full grape harvest of my town? God gave you two Midianite leaders into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? I broke jars, guys. You killed people. At this, their resentment against him subsided. Right? What did he just do? He just pacified their ego. He just looked at him and he goes, come on, what have I done? You're the real heroes of the day. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we are. Good point, Gideon. I li- I've always liked you. You know what? These other guys, they've just been all over your case. I'm a big fan of yours. Meanwhile, Gideon has a job to do. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. Now, of course, we're over here in the territory of Gad. All right, now we've gone across the river. Now, remember, all these tribes are not getting along. So they're almost like your own brothers or enemies. They cross into the town and they run into two towns, Sukkoth and Penuel. 
And this is what happens. He's exhausted. He's just been battling and he's running with his men, these same 300 guys. And he says to the man of Sukkoth, give my troops some bread. They are worn out and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. You think, oh, great. He needs some help. They should just give him supplies and let him go. Nope. But the officials of Sukkoth said, what, do you already have the hands of the kings in your possession? Meaning when they would kill a king, they would cut off his head and his hands. And that was their proof that they took him out. They said, you haven't won yet, have you? Why should we give bread to your troops? Now, before we give them a bad rap, which they deserve, by the way, because they're entirely unhelpful, and they've just made everything worse, now they've basically sided with the enemy. Do you see what happened? But before we give them a bad rap, let me just look something real quick on the map. They just crossed the Jordan River into Gad's territory. The enemies are on the other side of Gad. That's their hometown. So when they go back home and they re-muster up their armies to retaliate, who are they going to hit first? Gad's territory. So they're going, hey, that's really cool for you guys. But when they retaliate, they're coming at us first. No, we're not going to help you out. They'll find out about it. and They'll come get us. So they were cowardly, non-hospitable, and sided with the enemy. How do you think Gideon took that? Probably not well. Then Gideon replied, just for that, where the Lord, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. That doesn't sound good. I mean, I'm not a big desert thorns and briars guy, but it sure doesn't sound good, right? Here's what most scholars believe they did. They would take the men, the leaders, and this wasn't something you could do with tons, but they would take all the leaders, strip them naked, lay them all out on the ground, bound. They then take thorns and briars and thistles and lay it over their bodies and then they take sledges which are huge things that animals would pull over the ground and they would drive it over them back and forth until they die that's pretty brutal now that's one way to die he just said when i win i'm coming back and i'm taking you out wow that's like rambo that's pretty intense stuff (laughs) from there he went up to peniel or penuel same town And he made the same request to them. Hey, I need some help with supplies. But they answered the same way the men of Sukkoth had. That's not good. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. All right. He's on a rampage. He's man on fire. Are you seeing this? Here we go. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna, the enemy kings, were in Karkor. That's a city with a force of about 15,000 men. That means 11% of the original army is still alive. Started with 135,000. We're down to 15,000. They're going to muster up one last attack and fight. All that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples for 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. How about that for a god win? That's pretty good. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbeha and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. How many guys does he have? 300. Who's he fighting? 15,000. God continues to work miracles. And now he's not afraid. When you keep winning and keep doing victory, when you started with faith, your faith begins to grow. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Harry's and he caught a young man of Sukkoth and he questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of 77 officials of Sukkoth, the elders of the town. Why do you think he wanted their names? It's revenge time. 
Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkoth, here are the kings whom you taunted me about, saying, do you already have their hands in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. And he also pulled down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of that town. And you look at that and you go, so is that okay with God? There's no phrase of condemning it or condoning it. You're living in the dark ages. This is now a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. God hasn't commented on it. He said this is a time of brutality. I'm not telling you what Gideon did was right. I'm just telling you what Gideon did. Look at this. Then he asked the kings. Now he still has to get rid of the kings. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Stop. If you're not familiar with that phrase, no one is. We have no idea what he's talking about. Mount Tabor is up here. This has never been mentioned in Scripture before. He's now referring to an incident that we have no idea about. And you're going, Gideon, what are you getting at? Okay, so these kings, what, killed some people in Tabor? Who cares? And he asked them, he said, what do they look like? So these kings replied, they look like you, actually. Each one with the bearing of a prince. And Gideon shows his cards. And what are his cards? Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. In other words, I've had a personal vendetta against you since we began this thing. And oh, look, look who's on top now. If you, as surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. <laughs> but turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. How about that for parenting skills? <laughs> this is a brutal time. But he grabs his oldest son. Boy! Run them through. How did his son reply? But Jether did not draw a sword because he was only a boy and he was afraid. I would suggest to you that he had no clue what his son was all about. He should have known. Now you say, why would he have a son do it? That's kind of weird. That's kind of creepy. Well, here's why. The way you died in that culture had everything to do with your honor. If a child killed you, it was absolute humiliation. So first, he was trying to humiliate them. Second of all, whoever kills the bad guys gets high status. So what he was trying to do was let his oldest son get high status and move his way up in the world. He was trying to do his son an honor, but his son wasn't ready. Now, this is funny. It says right here, and this is my read. A lot of commentators read this differently, but here's my read. Ziba and Zalmunna said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. And here's how I read that. Your son's a wimp. What do you like? Bring it on. So what happened? So Gideon stepped forward and killed him. And he took the ornaments off their camels' necks. Bam, just like that. The Israelites said to Gideon, and you go, wow, you just, you just won this incredible war. I mean, this was massive. What are you going to do? They have a news reporter. What are you going to do, Gideon? What's next for you? Are you in the political office? And they start holding the microphone. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us. Boy, that's a great way to skyrocket to the top. Your son, your grandson, because you've saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Stop. Sounds like he's awesome. Sounds like now we got a solid leader. Somebody that's going to step up, 
take care of business and say, you know what? No, it's not all about me. No, I don't want the glory. Give it to God. God has asked us not to have a king. He wants to be our king. Just pay attention to him. And you go, wow, what an amazing man. I will never be a man that awesome. Hey, that's not all of Gideon. Look at the next phrase. And he said, I do have one request. Uh Uh-oh. That each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. For it was the custom of the Ishmaelites, meaning the bad guys, to wear gold earrings in their ears and in their nose. They answered, we'd be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. And the weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. You know how much that is? 48 pounds. That's a lot of gold. If you had a 48 pound object of gold, how much is that worth? Probably a lot. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels necks. You say, why does he want all that gold? Do you want to be rich? No. Verse 27. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. And all Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. What's an ephod? You guys remember when we studied the Old Testament tabernacle? When the priest would wear a special garment that hung on the front and on the back, and it was gold and it had 12 stones, that's how he would minister before Israel. And he would go in and talk to God, and there was only one high priest. And it had to come through a certain line. It had to come through the line of who? Levi. The priests. There was one line of priests. And the Levites, even the Levites themselves, the general people, couldn't touch certain things. Only the high priest, the one who wore the ephod. Now, we don't know what he's making here. But you know what I would suggest it is? He's trying to play priest. His whole life, he's been afraid until God spoke to him. Now all Israel keeps looking to him to give him answers. And I bet you anything, he used this to try to keep his control on God. And say, I got an ephod, you got to talk with me. I mean, I'm the people's man, you got to talk to me. He's nervous if God isn't talking. You say, well, that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, but look how he handled it. He sets up this thing in this town, basically plays priest, and everyone comes in and is led into idolatry. And you go, I don't get it, Lance. So is this guy a hero or a villain? I mean, in one sense, he's all into God. In another sense, he's completely ruining everything. Which is he? Wouldn't it be nice if life was that clean? How about he's human? How about he's a little bit of hero and a little bit of villain? How about he's just like you? And he's just like me. So is Lance a good guy or a bad guy? Depends on what area you're talking about. See, I got plenty of wickedness in me to lead everybody astray. But I also have some joy in the Lord and some holiness that can lead us in right places. Which is going to show? I don't know. By the grace of God, we can follow him. Amen? Then Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. Now, that's a hit. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live, and he had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. Holy cow. His concubine, his what? Oh, his mistress, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. 
Guess who our story next is about? Guess who's going to screw up everything? Guess what kind of lineage Gideon left? Terrible. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash and Ophrah of the Abizarites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the false gods, the Baals. They set up Baal-berith as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. What, you really don't think it was going to turn on you? You really don't think that you can say, praise me. He said, I don't want to be your king, but I want you to treat me like a king. You see, everything that was listed about him is what a king has. Multiple wives, concubines, gold, everything. He wanted to play this game of, hey, you know what? I'm too holy for that. No, you don't call me a king. I don't want the responsibility, but I want you to treat me like one. I mean, I'm going to have all this stuff. Remember what I did? I mean, I want a war for you, right? Ah, who's getting the glory? Gideon. Do you understand that here, God stripped away everything just to get glory, and Gideon found a way to get it all back and to take the glory back home? What will it be our legacy? Mark, bring the team on up as we close. Listen to me as we shut this period out. Are you grateful? Let's begin with what we can control. You can control the gratefulness of your heart. You can control whether God is getting glory from you. Are you looking at what he's given you or are you complaining about what you don't have? And secondly, with the people around you, are you giving away the glory and talking about how God is moving? Or is it still about building your kingdom? Is God going to need to come in and strip away everything from you just so you'll finally give him the glory he deserves? And when he does take it away, will you hate him? Or will you willingly mold into his hands? Tough questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to praise you right here and right now while our hearts are filled with thanksgiving. For all that you've done for us, the ways that you've provided for us, the fact that we have family that are around us that love us, the fact that we have friends, that we're in a church that cares about us, that we have a huge community right here. We want to thank you and praise you for showing your presence to us, being with us, being right here in the room, speaking to us out of your word, ministering to us through your worship, even as we're supposed to give it all back to you. You are a great and mighty God. And we are just people. But we recognize that you are amazing. May you be praised today in Jesus' name.